1: This is the Customer Equity Accelerator, a weekly show for marketing executives who need to accelerate customer-centric thinking and digital maturity. I'm your host, Allison Hartsoe of Ambition Data. This show features innovative guests who share quick wins on how to improve your bottom line while creating happier, more valuable customers. Ready to accelerate? Let's go! Welcome, everyone. Today's show is about building a business like Amazon, and to help me discuss this topic is Brian Eisenberg. Brian is the author of the delightfully clear and compelling Be Like Amazon, Even a Lemonade Stand Can Do It book, and also a partner at Buyer Legends. Brian, welcome to the show.
0: I'm very excited to be here.
1: Now, Brian, I have actually admired the books that you and your brother have written since Waiting for Your Cat to Bart came out, God, it must be like a decade ago. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and how you were drawn to this particular focus on Amazon?
0: Sure. I mean, this, this goes uh, way, way, way back. Our first book that we ever wrote was in 2001. We wrote a book called right? Persuasive Online Copywriting. And the reason I bring up that book, which is so interesting, is if you look at all the other titles of my books, they all have some interesting titles, but that one was fairly boring. And people always ask me, so why is that title so different? And the reason was the first attempt that we did as a self-published book. And we realized that one of Amazon's limitations back then was that they were essentially just a fancy search engine. So we basically did search engine marketing for our book. And said if anyone's looking for a book on online copywriting, even though my good friend at the time. Nick Osborne had written a book called Networds. that persuasive online copywriting would come up more frequently because people would look for more generic terms. Instead Clever. Instead the title of the book. Uh-huh. And so we had come up with that title. And that, of course, started our fascination with trying to understand how Amazon works. By the way, that same year, we also released the book uh, the co- with uh, my friend Jim Novo, The Marketer's Common Sense Guide to E-Metrics. So here I am talking about copywriting and a human approach to conversion and then on the other side, looking at the metric side of it, and this is back in the days when we were still using log analyzers just to help people understand their web data, right? And, okay, and okay. trying you, to get them.
1: You just dated me by calling out log analyzers. That's where I started. Uh, just Wow, it's yeah, a long way. Yeah, well,
0: I started even before that. I started with a server log dumps into Excel. Mm,
1: ouch. <laughs> so, yeah,
0: that was just a consequence of it. You know, we went ahead, and that one was also just a self-public ebook we had really started to get a fondness for where amazon was going as a business in other words we weren't very fond of the business itself but some of the things that they were doing in other words there were a handful of sites back in the early days when we were first consulting on seo and, and conversion rate optimization that we'd look at as saying okay what are they doing pretty interesting what are they testing this week and amazon was one of those that was pretty easy to spot things that they were changing fairly frequently compared to most I know you know my good friend, Ronnie Kahavi, you know him yep. as well, and he was one of the first people to start the testing program at Amazon back in the early days. And it was 2004 that he did a presentation at one of the first e-metrics on Amazon, and it was one of the first ones that really gave us an insight into how they worked. And back then, he talked about the 200 tests that they were doing on a monthly basis. And as a conversion rate optimization specialist, this was the focus of our agency that we started in 98. Then we stopped doing that about a decade ago. We just don't focus on that alone anymore. I realized that what was it that that helped them get to the 200 tests a month mark when most companies were barely getting three to five tests a month? Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to understand it. And of course, we went and we worked with clients like HP and, and GE and, and BC Universal and, and Google and I can go on and on and on. Then, of course, companies that nobody's heard of, small companies in their different niches, you know, vitamins and companies mm-hmm. that sell pig sperm online. I mean, really interesting ones. And it really started giving us some perspective. So even though we didn't really love Amazon as a business and thinking about not being profitable and all that, and some of the same things you still hear today, we knew that they were doing something different and I couldn't really understand it. And it was with talking with people who who had worked there, who had left there, reading a ton, basically everything I could about what Jeff Bezos would share in his interviews and in shareholder letters. And I started realizing that maybe I had things all backwards. And we had started on this concept of conversion optimization. Of course, it was customer centric. That really is sort of like the end of the flywheel for Amazon. It starts with the customer centricity, but it starts on the innovative side, And this is something that we learned while working with Google. And we spent two years working with them. And one of the things that one of the people we work very closely with there to tell us is most consultants never last more than three months at Google. He said, the part of the problem is they never learn how to operate on quicksand. That was his words. And it was really interesting for him to put that in. And I kind of imagine the level of innovation we're seeing in the world today, we've never seen before. I mean, if you think about the Industrial Hmm. Revolution, if you think about any other of these revolutions, it was a gradual change that happened. I mean, of course, there were so big true. moments, but it was a gradual change. But the amount of change that we go through every year today is just monumental how fast technology is, is shifting, how fast our culture is shifting. And so it really presented us with, okay, well, we're living on quicksand. So it's not just about optimizing what we have because that just gives us a, a local maximum that we'll ever achieve. We really have got to find new ways to do this. And so we realized that back, you mentioned, with Waiting for Your Cat to Bark in 2006, we realized you know, the, the limitation was that we were working off of the existing systems that were already flawed from their design point of view, and we needed to come in to fix them. That's optimization. Mm-hmm. We said, well, what if we actually created and mapped out the whole system? And so that's where we came up with this concept of persuasion architecture. Problem was, as we got to Google, is we live in a world with quicksand. Things change quickly. And so taking six months to a year to plan out a customer journey and plan out customer experiences was just too much. And so they needed something more agile. And so as we kept studying them more and and getting little different nuances, we realized that there's this new operating system that they're flowing under this flywheel concept of first, this focus on customer centricity. Everything has to bring long-term customer value. Then we innovate on behalf of the customer. Then, of course, you have to have the agility. And this is one of the ones that we realized that a lot of organizations that we work with over the years struggled where we go ahead and we'd give them something to test or something, an opportunity to correct or a new opportunity to, to make business, but they just couldn't find a way to execute on it. They didn't have the corporate agility to make change or even the appetite to let change happen because change doesn't always happen overnight. And those companies wouldn't necessarily get the same effects that we'd have with Amazon. And then, of course, comes the optimization as, as this last wheel to the flywheel. And I think if you look at the history of Amazon over the last 20 years, we can definitely see that it's been a long-term view. This didn't happen overnight. Amazon didn't become Amazon overnight. And I like to remind people, it's like, you know, Amazon was a startup once too.
1: Yes, isn't that the truth? Well, let's talk a little bit about the book. I mean, I can see how you got to the reframing, the understanding of how Amazon does business. But what I particularly liked about the book was that it takes a different tack when it comes to delivering the value in the form of a business fable. And that's difficult to do, I think, because you're balancing the skepticism that people come in when they hear a story and the need to communicate some very persuasive concepts. But I think it's really executed well. And I don't say that lightly because I personally hated the iceberg book that came out a couple of years ago, and I know that is also another popular business fable, but this one really works. And I think one of the reasons that it works is it's kind of like the e-myth. It gives people an operating system to work from. So help people understand why should they care about how Amazon does business? They're so big. They're so unattainable. And like you just said a minute ago, they were a startup once too. What is it that's the core nugget that helps people realize that even if they're a lemonade stand, they can do it too? Yeah. So I think there's a few
0: things about the book that with my brother and our mentor and co-author Roy Williams, I think we've really accomplished one. We wanted a book that was very accessible to any business owner. And and you know those fables, they tend to do well. The best-selling business books of all time fall somewhere between a third and fifth grade reading level, and we definitely aim to be there. What does that Um, say, Brian?
1: Oh, my gosh. A third and fifth grade reading level? I mean,
0: you you probably saw that study this past week that one in four Americans can't even name a book.
1: Oh, ouch, ouch. Okay, new topic.
0: (laughs) Okay. Okay. Anyway, so we knew we needed to keep it simple. The other thing is these principles are great for Amazon, but I'm not Amazon. And we really wanted to go out there and find examples of businesses that were using the same operating system to be successful, to show that any size business can do it, even a lemonade stand. And it's not just a fable. It's this, this banter that goes back and forth between the mentor and the main hero within the story. And we're trying to make sure that we're not just stating things in the story for the sake of stating them. We're actually giving you references to a particular TED Talk or a particular thing that he just searched up on Google and telling you where he found it. So that it really kind of crystallizes this fact and fiction world so that the book has that base to stand on
1: I love um, that modernization where he's you know, hey, look it up on Google, and then I basically had the book next to me and I'm like, oh, I could look it up on Google. <laughs> it's almost like an interactive guide at that point
0: <laughs> that's exactly it. It's meant to be this mentor through the process because it's not something that you're all of a sudden like, oh, if we do this, we're going to change our business so this is a as Avinash would like to call all this, you know, a faith-based initiative. And I think this is what really differentiates Jeff Bezos from most other managers today. It's why Warren Buffett calls him probably one of the best business people he's ever seen. The fact that this same operating system, the same four pillars, has worked in the retail business, has worked now in the software business, it has worked on AWS, it has worked for the Washington Post, which he owns. It's worked for their media business, winning all kinds of awards for their television shows and movies. And it's this commitment to being Earth's most customer-centric company and what that means for him. And there's a great quote that I love that he says, when things get complicated, we simplify by saying what's best for the customer, right, the customer-centric point of view. And then we take it as an article of faith. And for a person who's so methodical and detail-oriented to say, takes it as an article of faith, if we do that, it'll work out in the long term
1: keyword being in the long term because as we were talking a few minutes ago before we started the podcast the whole aspect of wall street driving short term you know show me your numbers what are your numbers what's my quarterly result that tends to work against the long-term view of businesses
0: and it's definitely wall street but it's even it's culture and like this is what i like to remind people right when Amazon first started. They were taking on companies like Barnes and Nobles and Borders, and of course, several of the bookstores closed. And there was problems with the book industry. I can, we can go on with that as a whole, probably separate discussion. But they were able to basically destroy that business. Seventy percent of all books today are sold through through Amazon. And if you haven't visited an Amazon bookstore, they're I think a great new alternative where book sales mm-hmm. should be going. Mm-hmm. A couple of years later, they're going on and they're now becoming the everything store. They're taking on every single category of business, you know, and they're trying to compete with Walmart, who to that point was the most data-centric organization in the world. But, like, they could tell you that if we squeezed this box of toothpaste by a quarter inch, we can increase our sell-through by 13 units a, a month.
1: So before we get into Walmart, hang on just a second. Let's make it really crisp. There are four pillars that the story really stands on. Let's elucidate what those four pillars are.
0: Sure. So it's customer centricity. Mm -hmm. Then it's a culture of innovation. Mm -hmm. Then it's corporate agility. And lastly, it's continuous optimization.
1: Yeah. Perfect. Okay. So now let's talk a little bit about Walmart and the fact that they were so data-driven. I mean, that kind of blows my mind because we oftentimes think about Amazon as data-driven. With those four pillars in place, where did Walmart start? How did they change? What happened?
0: So here's the two key things. Walmart data has always been focused in on product SKUs and location data. Mm. I know if I have product X, here, right, I'll sell more than if I have product Y there. That's what they were really good at doing. But what Walmart never knew, and this is what Jeff Bezos, I think, fundamentally meant by wanting to be Earth's most customer-centric company, is that if you walk into Walmart, or I walked into Walmart, or you know John from down the block walked into Walmart, the people at Walmart have no idea which one of us is the most valuable customer. They have no clue. So They'll true. know what sold that day. They know what the inventory came in, what came out, what's on but they have no idea who or what, because they've never tied it to an individual identifier. And that is the fundamental thing that I believe that Jeff Bezos understood about digital business and where business was headed, was that we could tie every bit of information, every website you visit, every affiliate site – everything you share, everything you purchase, everything you browse, everything you read, everything you watch on the Kindle, everything you highlight. I can get a sense from all of this data about who you are and how to serve you better. And I can tie it to originally an email. And then eventually, as soon as the mobile apps start taking off, they start connecting it to mobile phone numbers and then unifying those two. And the experience was seamless across both those channels because it was all one system. It wasn't Oh, one silo versus another silo. And you know, Amazon has their own legacy little things going on too, especially as a self-publisher. I could tell you that it's way different to publish as a physical book publisher than to publish a Kindle, than Audible. That all is a mess, mm-hmm. right? But from the customer side, it's a clear experience.
1: But wasn't, you know, I mean, Walmart obviously grew quickly because they cared about the customer, and it seemed like they, if we go back maybe 50 years, you can't get business growth unless the customer is willing to give it to you. What happened to that company?
0: Well, yeah, it shocked me. I I was recently at a fairly large, fairly sophisticated retail conference, you know, giving the keynote. And I had asked the room how many people in the room had read Sam Walton's Made in America. Mm. And I got to tell you, only one hand went up. Wow. And it kind of freaked me out. Coming back to this book issue, Sam Walton was probably one of the largest trailblazers of retail out there, period. I mean, he really, there's very few people who've had as much impact on retail as, as he did. And in his book, he talks about what we'll call his 10 commandments. Commit to your business, know what it was. Everyday low prices is what they were always after. They're always trying to find ways to bring value to their customers. One of their other ones, and I think this is where part of what's changed. Sam used to walk into all the stores, he used to have the greeters. He used to have a pulse of what was going on in the stores. And they used policies of share your profits with your associates and treat them like your partners. And we know over the news over the last number of years, that probably hasn't been the same. Energize your colleagues. Communicate everything you possibly can to your partners. Celebrate your success. Listen to everyone in your company. Exceed your customers' expectations. I don't think they've been doing a ton of that lately. Control your expenses better than your competition. I admit they've probably been doing great at that still. And then the last one is the one that I think really concerns me, which was blaze your own path. And I think it hasn't been until they finally did the aqua hire of Jet, that they really started focusing in on trying to be innovative. Mm-hmm. And even now I'm worried because I still see some of that struggle. I mean, perfect example. It was just announced this past week that they released this brilliant part in their app for their Sam's Clubs where you could scan the products as you were shopping and then basically just check out. There's no wait on the line anymore, <laughs> right? Just Someone would just double-check to make sure you had everything and you'd walk out. And they just canceled that program. And I'm like, I mean, I mean, I, I mean, they rolled it out. They they made a big deal about it at Shop Talk a few months ago, and now it's already it, it's it's already shelved. And I'm like, well, that's not viewing things long term, and from Amazon' languages, it's the right thing to do for the customer, even if there's not a lot of customers using it. Those customers that do, you should still support it. Uh-huh. What were they doing to encourage others to use it? Were they standing on long lines telling people, "Hey, you know, if you download the app now, and you can start canning you can be out of here before lunch." I don't know the answer to all those things, but just hearing the fact that they feel comfortable enough to cancel it just after a few months and not give that long-term commitment to their customers and to the projects makes it really hard to appreciate any innovation in your company. And I think this is part of what we've seen happen with Google as well, with some of the great projects they've come up with or Alphabet, right, right? and then right. shelf. And people hate about it. So It's one of the reasons why all my photos, they're backed up on Amazon Prime Photos because I <laughs> pay for it as part of my Prime membership. And I know they're not getting rid of it because it's a big piece of value for them. It's not like tomorrow they're going to decide, oh, well, you know, you've got to move everything out of here. Sorry.
1: I, I so agree with you because I have had that conversation with myself several times of whether it was the old homepage thing they had, but you could customize your start page or whether it was some other product. It's like, oh, you know, I really like this product. And then, oh, a couple years later, it's gone. And I keep telling myself, oh, that won't happen again. I can get dependence on this particular thing. But, you know, it's just uh, happened recently with Google Drive changing to File Stream. Which now you have to change things over into that system. So I hear you on those long-term challenges, but let's let's um talk about maybe there's a story that, you know, instead of the the big guys who have kind of lost their way, let's talk about a company that is pulling it together. Do you have some examples of, you know, companies whether they're large or small of the ones that have kind of taken this operating system and put it to use?
0: oh yeah i mean there's so many and i think my favorite example probably this is one from the book ken goodrich owns a hvac company called Gettle. he actually bought that company years later after he was ready in the business it became available and he wanted to buy it because he grew up with his dad repairing those machines and there's a whole long story behind ken and growing up in the business and holding the flashlight for his father Uh, part of their marketing is giving away flashlights and there's some funny stories with that, too, but I won't get into those. But one of the things that Ken grew up learning about the HVAC business that his dad was a stickler for was that you never left any screw loose in any part of the machine. Because any vibration in the unit or in the shroud, his belief is that in the long term, it creates damage to the unit. Mm-hmm. And so talk about being customer-centric and innovative, right, is the first part of the pillar. Like, okay, if you had some come look at your HVAC unit, would you know whether they changed all the screws or not? No. Most likely not, right? I mean, we're no expert. Every screw looks pretty much the same. Yeah. So what Ken did is he basically had his screws made bright red. Huh. And you think about that. Now, the action that his technicians take to change the screws, anybody, whether you're an expert or not, can tell whether the screws have been changed because if they're not bright red, they haven't been changed.
1: Huh. So they're right. essentially protecting think, the customer in advance.
0: Correct. And they're educating them that way and letting them know that this is really important to them, right? Actions demonstrate beliefs, not words. Mm-hmm. Right? And so it is a great way to be incredibly customer-centric. It's a innovation that costs I, I don't know. What is a hundred screws cost? Maybe a dollar? Not much. Right? I mean, it's you know, it's, it's a fraction of a cent more maybe per red screw than chrome screw or silver screw. I mean, it, just, it can't even amount to much. Yeah. It's a great system for making his team agile because they don't have to wonder which screw did I change or not change. If it's not bright red, they didn't change it. Yeah. Right? If it's a yeah. previous customer and it's beaten up a little bit, they know they didn't change it. So it's great for their systems as well. And so I love it because it shows that innovation doesn't have to be as big tech innovations. It could be as simple as, changing color of a screw.
1: You know, what's also important in that is a concept that you hit on in the book is that when you make a change like red screws, the more pillars it hits, the better the quality of the change. Because in that particular example, it's not just customer centric, it's innovative and it's also agile in a sense. So all of those pieces are coming together to support that decision, which ultimately creates long term benefit for the company.
0: A hundred percent.
1: Yeah. Tell us another story.
0: Wow. I mean, we have everything from jewelers who have done it. I have two other of my favorite stories. One of them, because again, I like really picking very sexy businesses. If we're going to talk about tech like Amazon, I think we really should talk, you know, really sexy. So how about junk collection? (laughs) Sexy. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, right. That ultimately is like, I'm going to come up and pick up your dirty soiled mattress yeah, that's, oh that's that's a that's a fun, sexy business. How could you not be innovative in that I like no. Brian Scudamar, the founder of one eight hundred got junk, the company that'll do close to half a billion dollars in sales probably this coming year. The extremely fast growing company based out of Vancouver and he literally started out of a pickup truck with the words got junk mm-hmm. and and if you watch their commercials and this is all part of their communications, basically you point at it and they make it disappear. It's like magic. Wow. And they create remarkable experiences for picking up your junk. And then literally just coming to your house and you tell them what you point at what you want removed and it's gone. And They take care of the process of recycling what needs to be recycled and repurposing what can be repurposed and getting rid of whatever it is. And they've done a number of things that are really remarkable. But one of my favorites, and this is something that everybody can go ahead and kind of check on their own, if they do a quick Google search for 1-800-GOT-JUNK and Fast Company and do the search for the term huddle, they have these daily meetings, part of what keeps them agile, where... Everybody in the company and across the globe joins in by virtual meeting if they have to. And they all share everything from the metrics, so nothing is hidden, to the challenges, to broken systems. And this short little meeting is very upbeat, very open. People get to engage with one another. And as I always like to say, one of the easiest ways to tell whether a company is struggling with agility is just look at the number of emails that somebody's getting CC'd or BCC'd on.
1: I love that metric. Um,
0: Yeah. I mean, companies that give their employees the autonomy to work just have conversations, get things done. And we have the data everywhere today. We know when something's not working. It's not hard to tell if you have the right metrics in place. What's the worst that could happen? And we share a couple of those worst stories in in the book as well, an example of, a guy who asked whether he can you know, redecorate one of the bathrooms in and, and a jeweler. I mean, you've got to read book. I'm not giving away all the stories. But yeah. when you give people autonomy to do the right thing for the customer, yeah, sometimes there's going to be a risk. You know, Amazon had their failure with their phone. They tried to push the envelope too much. And then, of course, they have things like Prime, which now has 100 million members that started as one of their traditional six-page customer-centric memos that worked backwards, which we'll, we could talk a little bit about later. Or the Echo device going everywhere with hundreds of thousands of skills now. So yeah. same thing, right? The beauty of a business like 1-800-GOT-JUNK is that they're very customer-centric. They make it very easy for people to point at what they want removed and it gets, they get rid of it. They're always trying to find ways to make it easier for people to engage with that experience. And they find ways to keep agile with these huddles and other methods in their business.
1: Yep. Hitting all the pillars. Yeah, that's fantastic. And then then
0: lastly, that broken systems is all about identifying where's opportunities for optimization. Yes, yes, yes. And and it's not just hidden within someone's group or department. It's something that basically those are ideas that can come from boardroom to stockroom.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's perfect. And, you know, transparency really being the key. And I see that as a huge difference between the older style of corporate activity. It's, it's not just that they're not transparent, but there's a sense that you don't have the privilege or the right to see that information, that there's some reason why. or the, or the need up. to know. Yeah. yeah. Right, or the
0: need to know. We're only going to let you have this much of the information because you don't need to know everything else.
1: Exactly, that we want to believe that everything is perfect, and we're just going to tell you the company line, and you're just going to go and put your widget in the box, and that's your job. Today's companies, I think one of the reasons why they can be leaner is because they're transparent, and people have an understanding of the mechanics of the business, and that's really the heart of customer centricity when you get to the math behind it, is it it inherently gets to how does the business operate, and then how can we improve? Exactly. Right. Okay. Well, this is fantastic. And I know there are many more examples in the story, which of course we won't give away, but let's say that I'm all excited. I've got my lemonade stand and I'm going to go out to the corner and put my shingle out. What should I do first? How can I put this into action?
0: So I'm going to give you one other story that doesn't exist in the book. And I think it's a great example of how I would approach this. My friend owns a mini donut factory in Tampa, Florida. Actually, it's called a mini donut factory. Tremendous amount of great reviews. He's expanded out to multiple shops. Business is doing great. And how did he start? Well, very much the way, as I mentioned earlier, this working backwards method that, that Amazon focus on, or as we talk about in our book, basically reverse chronology. What would you do if you were opening up a business or if you're current business and you wanted to make sure that every interaction with a customer ended in a five-star review? And so when Patrick went ahead and started thinking about donuts, he was like, well, first the donut would have to be hot and fresh and people would have to basically get it on the spot because if they're sitting, donuts that get stale just don't taste the same. No. So I think that's pretty easy. And he said, okay, we've got, now got these nice hot donuts. How else do we make sure that the customer, besides obviously tasting good because it's nice, hot and fresh, that's critical and you have a good recipe for the dough. He was like, okay, they got to look beautiful. And why is that so important? Well, especially for something like food, we know that people share these things on, on Instagram and on Facebook and on Google maps and, and Yelp. And so his focus was to make sure that every donut that came out of the kitchen handed to a customer looked absolutely beautiful, like perfectly decorated. So he came up with all these interesting combinations and, and came up with the different colors and this and that, right? So is gonna look absolutely gorgeous. So now he's got his plan. He knows where he's going to end. For a customer to give me a five-star review, first they're going to look at the donut that they just got and be like, wow, that's amazing. They're going to snap a picture of it. Then they're going to put one in their mouth and say, wow, that tasted amazingly. That's going to make them want to go review it. Mm -hmm. And if you go ahead, you go on Google, you do a search for Mini Donut Factory in Tampa. You're going to find those pictures. You're going to see those reviews, and you're going to be like, wow. So you start there. You start with where you want to end. And you work backwards. He said, okay, well, how do we get there? How do I get it so that – what do I need in order for customers to be able to order their donuts and for us to make them fast enough so that there's not a ridiculous line either? And sometimes there is. But how do we make it manageable? How do we create the systems in place to decorate it quickly? How do I train people to do that? And you just work backwards from each step. And so he's created, obviously, a donut that's very customer-centric, right? It's beautiful. It tastes great people like to share about it. It's remarkable. It's innovative. He's always trying new recipes and new designs and stuff like that. And he's always trying to find new ways to find new boxes or new ingredients that can enhance things. And then he had to be agile in order to do this. He's gone and catered events and stuff like that. He's had to create a very agile system to be able to knock out these donuts if basically in real time. Right. And then lastly, he's had optimized. He had a vision for what he wanted it to look like from the get go, but you can't always get everything perfect from the get-go. Like one of the things he knew he wanted was boxes that were the exact size to make it really like fit perfectly for the six donuts or the 12 donuts. And he had to settle for the boxes that he could buy off the shelf when he first started. But as he started getting more scale and more business, he was able to go ahead and get custom printed boxes, Huh. right? I mean, mm-hmm. I remember visiting him in Tampa and we were talking about the boxes specifically. So this isn't important for people to say, it's like, and this is probably one of the things that we had the hardest thing about when we first started Persuasion Architecture. We were trying to design everything to be absolutely perfect. Mm. And then we realized when you design everything with the goal of being perfect, but not realizing for the sake of agility that not everything has to be perfect. Sometimes you have to do with what you can, but know where the opportunities lie to keep improving it. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It changed the whole nature of how we execute on this customer centricity and optimization focus.
1: Well, and what you're really saying behind that too is when you say know where the opportunities lie, I think it's really where the customer becomes the central focus or the, the compass for how you find what the right optimization exactly. is, what the right improvement is. Mm-hmm. And we often find that, you know, there's millions of great ideas within the company, right? It's rarely
0: that they lack great ideas. It's that they struggle with just getting things done. <laughs> you know, like we spoke earlier, the old Kodak example, right? You know, they invented the digital camera in the 1970s, Yeah. but they were unable to execute. And I find that this is one of the biggest struggles, having worked with a ton of startups and a ton of companies that were venture-backed and wanted to grow and advising them. And, and, and we've seen that the biggest difference between those that succeed and those that don't are the ones that continue to have a culture of execution. mm. As you start going through the scaling up process, and this is going to come right back to the operating system area, uh-huh. a lot of the venture capital world still believes in the old style of management and all of that from 30, 40 years ago. And I think what Jeff Bezos has hit on is how he's developed the world's oldest startup, right? All these independently functioning units that are able to communicate with each other that are no larger than the size that two pies of pizza can feed and his method of making everybody sit down at a meeting and share this written narrative, what we call our our buyer legend, right? That is well-researched, well-documented. It's like if a comma is missing, what else hasn't been thought out? But it allows everybody from this working backwards phase to really understand and get on the same page with, everybody on the team and in the organization. And that is what has enabled them to, if you think about it, it's the lowest fidelity prototype that you can create. Mm -hmm. It's just written as a story. And that's really what we've been focused on over the last few years is how to help organizations learn how to create those narratives, how to create the stories and and create that culture that is operating with this growth flywheel the way Amazon has, because, this more traditional sense of management slows you down. In today's day and age, it's not the big fish that are eating the small fish. It's the fast fish that are eating the big fish.
1: (laughs) That's so true. That's actually the way we segment our customer base is by fast and slow and not by size of company. So funny. Good. Well, Well, Brian, if people want to get in touch with you, how should they reach you?
0: Sure. Very easy to find me online. Of course, you can find us at buyerlegends.com. You know, I'm on LinkedIn, I'm on Facebook, I'm on Twitter. You know, I speak at a number of conferences every year, and we're always happy to answer questions. And. Talk to people, whatever challenges they're facing in this very quicksand-like world that we're living in.
1: (laughs) It's such an apt analogy, and it's very true. It's almost like you're in those video games where you have to go fast across the pitfall area, and you have to move. Pitfall, Harry! Wow,
0: let's talk about bringing us back now. That was, yeah, that was a reference I haven't heard in many, many, many years. It was one of my favorite games, by the way.
1: Mine too. Mine too. (laughs) Okay, well, I'm going to attempt to summarize our conversation a little bit, and feel free to jump in if you think I've missed something. But first we talked about why should I think that I can build a business as great as Amazon. And it's really about what all businesses have been built on traditionally, which is long term customer centric thinking. Ultimately the customer gives your business permission to be in business by doing transactions with you. So naturally, thinking about them long term and operating in a customer focused fashion is the way to navigate from short term penny pinching decisions that might not be as customer friendly. Second, we hit on the unified principles, which have four pillars. So there's four principles, but they work together. So the better the decision, the more pieces you're hitting on. And those four principles were customer centricity, continuous optimization, culture of innovation and corporate agility. And I know you go a lot into the examples about those in the book, but we talked particularly on our call about Walmart and kind of how they lost their way with the product SKU, and location data. What I thought was interesting about that comment was that so many organizations do this. They take product-centric thinking and call it customer-centric because the customer buys the product. But really, how you frame that data is really important. And when they framed their data around product SKUs and locations, they weren't thinking about who their most valuable customers were and what they were thinking about, right? Exactly. Then we talked about the HVAC example, and I love the red screws, and that's just such a a simple and elegant way to combine the principles, whether it's customer-centric because they're helping the customer know that you have to have the screws changed. It's also innovative because it tells them whether the screws have been changed and it's agile. All of this comes together under the core principles, all four acting together. But what you said in this section was that actions demonstrate beliefs, not words, which you just alluded to at the very end when you said startups win when they continue to have a culture of execution. I just wanted to like underscore that five times on my paper here, because coming from a startup background, it really is the differentiator. It's not who your investors are. It's the fact that you continue to execute on the right things, the customer-centric things, as we saw in the donut example, and as we saw in the got junk example too. So finally, at the end, we talked about what you should do next. And obviously, we went into the donut example and the startups. But I have to say, what you should really do next is buy the book. (laughs) It's such a quick read. I read it on the flight home after we connected in Austin. And it's just got so many good nuggets. It's one of those pieces that you pick up and you underline and you dog ear and you say again and again, you know, oh, I've got to go back here for some inspiration. And I think of myself as more lesson expert in the space, and I learned things in this book. So this was really a well-done, well-written piece. So thank you, Brian, for putting it out there.
0: You're welcome. It's also available in audio for those who don't even feel like they have the time to read it either. They can just listen to it in one and a half or two speeds.
1: Excellent, excellent. Now, we will be putting everything we discussed today in the links, the transcript for the podcast. We'll link to Brian's book. We'll link to the Sam Walton's book. We'll link to Brian's company, Buyer Legends, which is an excellent firm, and anything else that we've covered. I think there was a, another example about 1-800-GOT-JUNK and the huddles, which I thought was particularly compelling. So, as always, everything will be in AmbitionData.com slash podcast Brian, thank you again for joining us today.
0: It was really an honor to be here.
1: Remember, everyone, when you use your data effectively, you can build customer equity. It is not magic. It's just a very specific journey that you can follow to get results. Thank you for joining today's show. This is Allison. Just a few things before you head out. Every Friday, I put together a short, bulleted list of three to five things I've seen that represent customer equity signal, not noise. And believe me, there's a lot of noise out there. I actually call this email The Signal. Things I include could be smart tools I've run across, articles I've shared, cool statistics, or people and companies I think are doing amazing work building customer equity. If you'd like to receive this nugget of goodness each week, you can sign up at AmbitionData.com and you'll get the very next one. I hope you enjoy The Signal. See you next week on the Customer Equity Accelerator.